Father, we do indeed confess all glory be to your Son, Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. It is Jesus, the rock that was laid in Zion, who indeed as such is the foundation of our hope, the cornerstone of the church. He is the seat of all authority, and he is the judge, whereby all claims to the contrary will be recognized as falling short. He is furthermore as the rock in the wilderness, the miraculous source of eternal life. And it is to his word we turn as we open the scriptures. We confess these things today, that Jesus is Lord and we are his subjects. He is our Savior. He is the one who has stood in our place. He is our Messiah. He is the Ascended One. He is the High Priest who intercedes forever before the throne, your throne, O Lord, pleading our case, the cost of his blood, and rendering us justified in the presence of Almighty God through the propitiatory work of Calvary. We thank you for these truths, and as now we turn to the Scriptures, I pray that you would open our hearts to receive them and strengthen our confession according to their truth. Make our proclamation bold and unwavering, and I pray that your gospel would go forth as your people seek to be faithful to the call to make disciples of every tribe, tongue, and nation. We thank you in our midst that there have been baptisms of late, that eight souls testified before us last week that they take their stand with Jesus Christ and recognize His sovereign grace has saved them. Lord, for all of them and for the rest of us, I pray that we would receive your word with hearts opened by the Holy Spirit to transform us into the image of Christ. And for any who are in the hearing of this message who have not repented and believed, we pray that the sharp two-edged sword of your scripture would reveal to them their sin and that Jesus Christ is the only way of salvation. It is in his name we pray. Amen. Hallelujah. What a glorious weight and privileges, privilege it is and a joy to turn to the scriptures together and to consider God's holy word. I encourage you to do so with me today by turning to Genesis 35. We'll consider verse 16 through the close of the chapter as we chart the travels of Jacob from Bethel, where God has visited him a second time, recorded in verses 9 through 15. And then on further into the promised land and unto his calling. There are tests and there are trials that await Jacob in the promised land, and he encounters them virtually immediately. The title, accordingly, of this morning's message is Jacob's Troubles. Uh, today we have in the record of Scripture trials, troubles that Jacob encountered in his walk of faith. And the question before him is, were the promises and covenant of God sufficient to prepare him to encounter those with boldness and in faith? We find that the word of God is always sufficient, not just in the testimony of Jacob, but in our own testimony, as we seek to have our faith built by the saints who've gone before. The aim of this morning's message, therefore, is to magnify the glory and grace of God, surpassing every trial. We witness in our text today the glory and grace of God, surpassing the troubles of Jacob. And in this, God is glorified and we are encouraged. Would you stand out of reverence for the reading of God's word today? 
Behold in your ears the infallible, inerrant Word of God as we consider the Scriptures given to us in Genesis 35, 16 through 29. Then they sojourned from Bethel. When they were still some distance from Ephrath, Rachel went into labor, and she had hard labor. And when her labor was at its hardest, the midwife said to her, Do not fear, for you have another son. And as her soul was departing, for she was dying, she called his name Benoni. But his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died, and she was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. And Jacob set up a pillar over her tomb. It is the pillar of Rachel's tomb, which is there to this day. Israel journeyed on and pitched his tent beyond the tower of Eder. 22. While Israel lived in that land, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. Now the sons of Jacob were twelve. The sons of Leah, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. The sons of Rachel, Joseph, and Benjamin. The sons of Bilhah, Rachel's servant, Dan, and Naphtali. The sons of Zilpah, Leah's servant, Gad, and Asher. These were the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Paddan Aram. 27. And Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre, or Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had sojourned. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years, and Isaac breathed his last, and he died, and was gathered to his people, old and full of days. And his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Jacob's life experience includes dramatic events of blessing and sorrow. A dramatic event of blessing has just been witnessed in the text prior to what we read, verses 9 and following. How amazing would this be? It says, God appeared to Jacob again when he had came from Paddan Aram and blessed him. God said to him, Your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. And it goes on to describe this encounter of covenant affirmation where the renewal and confirmation of the promises of God are secured and assured to Jacob by a personal visitation of Yahweh at the place that Jacob has come to call the house of God or the gate of heaven, Bethel. It says in verse 13 that after the Lord, by implication, condescended, then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him. Indeed, a stooping lower, a condescension, an ascension, a rising event. The Lord has accommodated, revealed, Himself, He has spoken to, communicated in a real and knowable way to His Son in this sovereign, miraculous, revelatory event. What a mountaintop. What a glorious experience that must have been. But have you noticed in our text how quickly the scene changes? Jacob's life experience indeed includes dramatic events, sometimes one following the other, of significant and amazing blessing to deep and protracted sorrow. Having welcomed the visitation of God himself, once again revealed to Jacob at Bethel. This is the second time we remember his dream of the heavens opened and the staircase touching ground. Having left this place, being visited by God a second time, Jacob puts behind him the gate of heaven, so to speak, only to encounter great tragedy. Bitter providences soon visit the covenant son in the form of three things. Calamity, sin, and death. Jacob, 
through the course of his life to this point, has attested with his pillars or monuments, these monolithic stones that we've recognized through the text. Our last message chronicled four of them. He has recognized with these pillars that the promises of God so far have proven stronger than exile. In Genesis 28, running away from Esau, the Lord visits him, assures him of that Emmanuel promise, I will be with you to fulfill the promises to you and that were given long before you to your grandfather, even Abraham, and your father Isaac. I will not leave you or forsake you. I will accomplish and as proof that God is powerful enough to do so, he opens up the eyes of Jacob to see into the heavenlies the power that guides him and attends him on the way. So therefore, Jacob sets up a pillar, a stone of testimony in that place, declaring in that act that God is stronger than exile. Yes, I'm running away from my brother, but the Lord is encamped alongside me on the way. God is not only stronger than exiles, as proved in Jacob's experience, but stronger than his enemies. Therefore, in Galid, Mizpah, he sets up the second pillar. After coming to peaceable terms with his one-time enemy and oppressive father-in-law, Laban. And there, that testimony reminds Jacob and proclaims to his family and all who would heed that the Lord and his promises are stronger than exile, enemies, and a third pillar has been raised and Bethel, and this pillar of stone is not just on the heels of a visitation, but on the heels of horrific sin in his family. In chapter 34, we find that Simeon and Levi have taken vengeance into their own hands and avenged the dishonoring of their sister Dinah in a murderous rampage and plundering of the surrounding peoples. Jacob exhorts his family to turn from their sin, to repent of their gods, to put them away to join him in worship at the place where God had visited before. Thus he returns in repentance to Bethel. And God visits him and his family. And as we mentioned, he confirms, he renews the promises of the covenant. And so Jacob sets up another pillar, declaring the promises of God stronger than horrific sin. And the fourth pillar is set up in our text today. And I submit to you, Jacob attests in this moment that the covenant of God is stronger than death. The beloved bride has succumbed to death, and Isaac, in just a few verses later, the patriarch will die as well. And so the trials have intensified, but God has revealed himself to his son. And now he proclaims at Bethlehem, in spite of his most intense trials, perhaps thus far, that the word of God is stronger than death itself. The question Jacob faces at this chapter of his calling, at this juncture in his life, is this. Will the calamity of death and the sins of the next generation nullify the promises of the covenant? Will the calamity of death, the loss of his beloved bride, Rachel, and the loss of Isaac, and the reminder in this that all must pay the wages of sin unless someone pays it in their place, Messiah to come, will this calamity of death and the sins of the next generation, even not just the dishonoring or not, not just the vengeance, that was taken into their own hands of his sons to avenge Dinah's dishonoring, but now a dishonoring of his own wife, indeed one of his concubine servants by his own son. Are God's promises stronger than these roadblocks and trials in the way? Will the next generation's sins nullify the promises of God? The answer is no, but only, I submit to you, the personal and powerful Yahweh condescending to reveal himself 
and his word to his servant is sufficient to assure Jacob of this fact. God himself has come to him again at Bethel and ascended in glory after that visitation. And only this could grant Jacob the resolve he needed to face these troubles. As Jacob's troubles mount, they're attended by the weeping of Rachel and the distress of the covenant son. And these both prove emblematic and prophetic of future tribulations that the children of Israel would face later along the way. If you mark for further study, Jeremiah 30, verse 7. In Jeremiah 31, 15 through 17, Jacob's troubles and Rachel's weeping are both referenced as prophetic and symbolic of the trials that the people of God would face later on. Yet in each case, in this first example with Jacob and Rachel, and later as his people would face trials in the future, there remains an abiding hope of salvation and deliverance according to the gospel. Jacob acknowledges this in the record here, Solomon, or I'm sorry, uh, Moses records it. And then the prophets proclaim as much, namely Jeremiah and those references we just cited. And then in the New Testament, we see their glorious fulfillment. In every age, believers face the prospect of calamity, sin, and death at some point in the course of their life. However, like Jacob, we received a visitation of the Lord sufficient for the trials at hand. And the fulfillment of these texts ultimately finds its revelation or its uh, corresponding reality in Jesus Christ. In Jesus Christ, God has condescended. He has stooped low in covenant provision, even at the close of his redemptive work as he ascended in glory to commission the presence and indwelling of his Holy Spirit to accompany us on our journey unto the promised land of future glory. So as we read Jacob's testimony, in light of its fulfillment in Christ, my prayer and aim in this message is that we would be strengthened and exhorted and encouraged to trust God through our own troubles. As we, through the reading and proclamation and paying heed to the word, see the magnification of the glory of God surpassing every trial. Let me give you a heading and four divisions for our text today. Here's the heading. Milestones on Jacob's journey from Bethel. What are these milestones? Well, first of all, birth and death. Jacob's journey from Bethel into the, on into the promised land is marked by the birth of Benjamin and the death of Rachel. Secondly, this journey is marked by a pillar and a tower. The pillar we already referenced, but there's an additional structure, a tower, referenced in 21. Thirdly, sins and sons, if you will. More sins of the next generation and a genealogy of Jacob's household. And finally, the milestone we'll consider today on Jacob's journey from Bethel is a funeral and a reunion. That is the burial of Isaac by two sons, Esau and Jacob birth and death. A milestone on Jacob's journey from Bethel, verse 16. Then they journeyed from Bethel. When they were some distance from Ephrath, Rachel went into labor, and she had hard labor. And when her labor was at its hardest, the midwife said to her, do not fear, for you have another son. And as her soul was departing, for she was dying, she called his name Ben-Oni. But his father called him Benjamin. 
So Rachel died and she was buried on the way to Ephrath. And then note these parentheses, that is Bethlehem. So we have the beloved bride giving birth to a son, succumbing to death at a place that will be known as Bethlehem. And these details are marked in the text for a reason. Sometimes the symbolic weight of these passages are only really understood and made clear as we continue to read the scriptures. And just a hint for your own Bible study, when you see references like that, parentheses, that is Bethlehem, think of what Bethlehem represents. Dig in your scriptures a little bit and see if you can't cross-reference deeper shades of meaning that can be gleaned from the connections not only geographically, but spiritually, theologically, as God continues to reveal his plan of salvation in significant ways and by points of reference such as places and people that we see in our text today. So a few of these we might note. Note, first of all, that a covenant son is born. That is a son of favor and beloved, uh, a beloved son according to a prophecy of old. What prophecy, you might ask? Well, the name Joseph means increase and express the heart of a mother. A mother who desired and longed in her barrenness to be fruitful and to bear children. God answered her prayer with the birth of another son. Thus, Joseph's name, meaning increase, in hopes of further fruit from her womb, was answered with the son, Benjamin. So that is a miraculous birth to the covenant bride, if you will, was experienced by Rachel at this time. And we, as we read, according to the testimony of Jacob and his family, where he fits into God's purposes and salvation, we find that though the lineage of the Messiah would continue through Jacob's fourth son by Leah, namely Judah, nevertheless, the plight of Rachel in childbirth and her sorrow is indicative of the redemptive purposes of God through trial. That is, not only is the line of Judah significant in explaining to us aspects of salvation, but also the sorrow and the plight of Rachel, her desire to be fruitful and to bear children, is also significant. Later on, her troubles are referenced with respect to the people of God and the difficulties they may go, go through. And the birth of her son is also symbolic of hope. In the midst of tragedy, in the midst of trial, in the midst of sin, in the midst of troubles and all the effects of the fallen world, God can bring miraculous birth. Miraculous birth in spite of death. This is the gospel. If you are a believer in this room, have you not experienced spiritually a miraculous birth? When God took what was once dead in you, your stone-cold heart, in enmity against the Lord and rebellion against His laws, and made it soft as clay and pliable in His sovereign hands, such that you recognize your transgressions as falling short, and you confessed with heart, a heart filled with tears, and a knowledge of his holiness that you are guilty of transgressing the holy law of a righteous God. You were born again. A miraculous new birth took place in your soul. And you gasped your first cries as a spiritual infant. I trust you, Jesus, as my Savior. I know you died for me. You are my only hope. I am a sinner. You are my Savior. And I trust that when you died, my sin's payment was paid. Thus, a miraculous birth in the midst of sin and trouble is accomplished in the heart of every true believer. Furthermore, in this sinful world, in this humanity tainted by the blood poisoning of Adam's sin, 
another miraculous birth would come when Mary, the mother of Jesus, would become pregnant, conceived uh, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Jesus Christ, conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary, would once again testify to what the, uh, was, shadowy, was, was signified in shadowy form, Rachel of old, of new birth in spite of troubles. Rachel's tragic death foreshadows, by contrast, a glorious hope in another birth yet to come. Think of it this way. Whereas Rachel suffered death through birth of her prophesied son, Mary and all true believers, even Rachel herself, if she placed faith in the Messiah to come, Mary and all true believers would experience resurrection life by virtue of the birth and death of the prophesied covenant son to come, Jesus Christ. So this birth of the covenant son is a milestone on Jacob's journey from Bethel. And it signals, it anticipates, it points us forward in the text to look for another miraculous birth. More ways that God intervenes in spite of calamity, sin, and death to accomplish his holy will and to redeem for himself a people and to set up his rule and reign in spite of the fallout of sin. Rachel's weeping. The sorrows of this time prophetically picture the anguish of a fallen world grieving under the burden of sin and judgment. Through the ages, even at the time of Christ and at the time of the incarnation, the voice of the women, the mothers in Bethlehem, their, prayer, or their cries were heard and their weeping upon the infanticide of Herod trying to snuff out the covenant son was spoken of in terms of Rachel grieving for her children. Today, this cry, this human cry, because of the fallout and the atrocity of sin and the consequences and the death of the innocent and all of the wickedness and the peril and the, and the corruption that we experience as a result of transgressing God's law is felt even now. As we were reminded this week, the scourge of abortion, depriving millions of would-be mothers of the joy and blessing and the fruit of the womb, all of this, this scourge, if those who understood it rightly could hear the sound, what would they hear? They would hear the sound of millions of mothers weeping, crying out the sorrow of Rachel for what was lost. Sure, in our sin we try to mask that sorrow, and well, how do we do it? By reinterpreting the law and morality and ethics to somehow try to celebrate the murder of the innocent unborn as a virtue and a human right and reproductive freedom and whatever euphemism to self-justify our sin. But be, do not be mistaken. If you listen closely with the ear of faith, you will hear a deafening cry. The blood of the innocents crying out for judgment, even as Abel's blood cried from the first murder of the first sinner just shortly after the Garden of Eden, and until those balances of justice are established, that cry rises before a sovereign and holy God and declares this nation guilty of blood guilt. And each individual sinner who has transgressed his holy law, guilty and worthy of execution and hell. How can we be saved? How can Rachel's weeping how can the sorrow and the collective weight of the guilt of mankind and our individual sin be consoled? Only 
if a Savior, a covenant son, dies in our place. When his passion on Calvary and in the suffering of his torn flesh and blood takes upon himself the judgment that one who would kill their child for the promise of economic liberty deserves. It's a powerful reminder. We have not moved beyond the harsh and the primitive sinfulness of ancient man in spite of our technology today and our hubris and our claim that we're progressive and beyond the uh, cruel and primitive ways of the ancients. Nope. We just hide and mask and self-justify our sin by different ways. But in the scale of millions, we are guilty. Yet, even in this, surrounded by this carnage and this death and this followed of sin, there yet remains consolation for the weeping of Rachel. Where is that consolation to be found? Only in Christ. Once again, we're reminded of two factions that plague the world's existence until the Lord finally consummates His kingdom. And those two groups of people are the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. Where do you stand today? Second milestone on Jacob's journey, birth and death. Secondly, a pillar and a tower. Verse 20, Jacob set up a pillar over her tomb. It is the pillar of Rachel's tomb which is there to this day. We spent a message or so discussing the significance of this pillar. Jacob recognizing the sovereignty of God even over death. That his promises are yet assured and enduring in spite of that greatest enemy. This is a testimony of faith that God would somehow overcome the calamity and the death and the sin that attends Jacob's way. And that there is hope of a stone established in Zion. When the New Testament speaks of Christ as that stone, that sure foundation, that cornerstone, it references these pictures. The testimony of faith of Jacob of old looked forward to a stone to come, if you will. Words used, a term used to describe Jesus. He is a stone. He's a stone of remembrance. He's a testimony of God's word. He is the word made flesh. He is a stone. He is the cornerstone. He is the foundation upon which a church is built. And you and I, as living stones, are fitted against that standard. According to him, as he shaves off our edges and changes us into his image and then builds his kingdom and his church. He is that stone that will crush any rival claim to authority, to power, if they are not broken and bow the knee before him in repentance and faith. And inasmuch as he is that stone, he is the seat of judgment, judgment which declares a reckoning over all unrighteousness of men, if not now, then on that final day. Therefore, kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, O kings. Others with claim to authority, serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling, kiss the son, seek his favor, bow while there is yet today, because he is a stone in Zion. And furthermore, the stone, as we referenced in our opening prayer, is a miraculous source of life. He was that stone as it were struck in the wilderness. And just as the stone was struck and the water flowed, by the command of the servant Moses, so when the spear struck the side of our Lord, that water flowed from his side. That was the means of payment for our sin. It was the very means of eternal life, the source of, re of, of redemption and eternal life. Jesus Christ, the stone, struck as a miraculous source of life for us. This is what the pillar represents. This is what it will come to be known as. This is how the fulfillment of this language will unfold over time. This is a testimony not just to, just to Jacob or those assembled at the time, but the author, Moses, he says, which is there to this day. 
calling attention to this pillar for those who resided in that region. And as we've said before, this pillar yet stands. Where do we visit it? In the pages of God's holy word. This pillar stands, and so we recognize the testimony of Jacob, that God was faithful. And we uh, confess with him, especially as we have experienced it in Christ, that the pillar that God establishes is stronger, or his covenant is stronger than death. Yet there's a tower as well. What could this mean? Verse 21, Israel journeyed on and pitched his tent beyond the tower of Eder. Eder, by the way, means flocks. Turn with me to an important cross-reference, Micah chapter 4. Here, as we draw connections across the pages of Scripture, the prophets pick up on events like this in proclaiming prophetically the hope of the Messiah arriving in Bethlehem. Powerful indeed. Micah chapter 4, verse 6, a prophet proclaims, a day of the Lord. It says, In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away and those whom I have afflicted. The title of this morning's message, let me pause there, Jacob's Troubles. The afflictions that Jacob and Rachel and his family experience, there's prophesied in Scripture that although that stone marks moments of great calamity and death and sin, nevertheless, there is coming a hope on the horizon where those who were afflicted are going to be gathered. Those who were driven away in exile will be reclaimed and called back to identity and, and uh, assembly within the beloved. Verse, verse 7, And the lame, furthermore, the prophet says, I will make the remnant, and those who are cast off a strong nation, and the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. Verse 8, Pay particular attention to this reference. And you, O tower of the flock, hill of the daughter of Zion, to you shall it come, for the former dominion shall come, kingship for the daughter of Jerusalem. Who is this, or what is this? And you, O tower of the flock. This is a reference to Bethlehem. This is the tower of Eder that's used as a prophetic symbol of a place, a place where the incarnation would touch ground where heaven's staircase would touch earth in the birth of Jesus Christ, announced to who? Keepers of flocks in Bethlehem. I don't know if the Tower of Eder stood, but I imagine it in my mind as a possibility that the Tower of Eder is there, these stones are rising as a silhouette against the stars, and the shepherds guarding the flocks in Bethlehem were privileged to welcome the announcement, the first ones to hear the news. Unto you is born this day, the fulfillment of Micah 4, 6 through 8. The Tower of Eder has experienced, has witnessed, if you will, a miraculous birth. Jesus Christ is born. And this Jesus Christ will redeem all troubles, all sin, and all calamity in his mighty work of salvation. And he will establish his kingdom and rule and reign forever. And Mount Zion will be the foothold of his authority, never to be challenged ever again from this time forth and forevermore. And those who are lame, despondent, rejected, and victims of, the, of all of the burdens of this fallen world, and were guilty, furthermore, and much worse, of the judgment of God because of their own sins, God, by His mercy and grace, through the proclamation of His gospel, has made a way for them to be gathered in to a people, to a covenant, 
to be grafted in as children of Israel in fulfillment of those pictures of old, that they would be established as a kingdom of priests forever, as a tribe who will profess, as a new people who will declare, and as a royal priesthood who will stand as testimony to the King of Kings. Unto you is born this day on the plan, or in the proximity of the Tower of Eber, the one who will redeem and satisfy all of these covenant conditions. Praise the Lord. Number three, milestones on Jacob's journey from Bethel. Birth and death, a pillar and a tower. Thirdly, sin and sons. As we turn back to our passage, we see this tragic note, only a verse is dedicated to, dedicated to it. Yet the wickedness and depravity is nevertheless apparent. While Israel lived in that land, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. It's tempting to read between the lines a bit and to maybe acknowledge a certain tendency to passivity that Jacob was wont to display. He heard that his son had violated one of his wives, and what did he do? Nothing. Well, later we find in the record of Scripture, if you were to read in Genesis 49 or 1 Chronicles 5, 1 and 2, there were indeed consequences for this sin. In other words, this disqualified Reuben from being the laying claim to the birthright. Who else has been disqualified so far? Simeon and Levi both, in verse 25 of chapter 34. These are the ones who took that violent you know, vengeance rampage on their neighbors. On the third day when they were sore, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's daughter, brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. So think of it. You're Jacob. And the track record of your sons, the next generation, is riddled with horrific sin. Your oldest three sons have all disqualified them from the birthright. Simeon and Levi, as we've just read, they're, they're disinherited because they broke God's law in such an egregious way, committing murder and theft across the peoples of this land in which they entered. And then Reuben, horrific in his own right, goes and violates his own stepmother, lying with his father's concubine, disqualifying himself. Number, who is child number four? That would be Judah. But you can see the fear in Jacob would be tempting Will the sins of the next generation nullify the promises of God? God would accomplish His purposes, and, he, and His line of the Messiah would not be snuffed out. The enemy would have to come up with something stronger than death, something stronger than calamity, something stronger than sin to stop the purposes of God. And as it turns out, those are all the weapons He has. Jesus Christ is stronger than all of these. The sovereignty of God has overcome even in the course of history as it's recorded, all of these strikes against it, against all odds and against the sin, calamity, and death that has riddled this world in the consequences of fallenness. Nevertheless, Judah would one day have a son who would have a son. Furthermore, and continuing on until Jesus Christ would be born. Reuben's vain attempt at dominance is perhaps in, featured here as well. In other words, we know from other passages of Scripture, 2 Samuel 15, that wicked counsel was given to Absalom. Yeah, this is how you can claim that you are the true alpha male, the true dominant, the true uh, sovereign worthy of the crown. Go in and violate your father's concubines. 
Perhaps this, is the, this was the motivation for Reuben. Oh, my dad is a pushover. He doesn't deserve to rule this family. Everyone knows that I am better cut out to be the patriarch, and I'll prove it. I'll go in and lay with his concubine. And so if this indeed motivated Reuben, what was he seeking to do? Usurp his father's authority like Absalom tried to do with David. This is an act of raw power in modern terms. We might call it Machiavellian humanism. Machiavellianism means the ends justify the means. A political philosopher, Machiavelli, he just deemed that the best way, the most efficient way for a prince to gain, to exercise power, is as long as there was no consequences, to use whatever means that was, were at his disposal, without reference to the law of God, any absolute morality or authority notwithstanding. This was a similar act, I submit. It was a humanistic play, power play, to seek to circumvent God's purposes. But what he learned the hard way is that when God appoints and anoints his servant to be his son, he will not be overthrown by, uh, by the wickedness of man, by humanism or any other political philosophy or any other Marxist ideology, any other claim to authority. No, what happens is you merely disqualify yourself if you do not repent. and You're cut off in your own sin, and you're ultimately judged by God, who is the true sovereign. Jacob may not do something about it, but God will in due time. You must repent or you will answer for your sins, and so Reuben learns this the hard way, along with Simeon and Levi. So Jacob's journey from Bethel is marked by these kinds of sins, but it's also marked by God's grace in a fruitful genealogy. Jacob has 12 sons now, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Joseph, Benjamin, and it goes on, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. And we should not pass, we should not pass this passage without realizing that the commandment to Jacob to be fruitful and to multiply and pending that promise, fill the earth, and I will make of you a great nation, is coming true. And it will come true exponentially in the next generation, in the next generation. Jacob's sons soon will grow to be a mighty number. In just a few short centuries, they, historians estimate, will number a million strong. And they will have their own exodus event out of tyranny, just like Jacob and his sons left the oppressor Laban. So they will leave Pharaoh and they will enter once again into the promised land and revisit Bethel according to the covenant promises of God. But in the meantime, this genealogy marks the faithfulness of God. Rachel's longing for children and her sorrows for being deprived of them by barrenness, as well as these attending genealogies, are quite the lesson for us. The Lord loves and commands fruitfulness. Children are a blessing and a heritage from the Lord. And it is truly a gift and an overflowing grace to have your quiver full of them. Blessed is the man who has children. He will not be mocked in the gate, but the testimony of his character will continue, the Psalms say, beyond him through his lineage. Can you compare the economic opportunity of a single, career-minded, ambitious young woman embracing whatever the latest wave of feminism is and then rising to the heights of a career and a CEO opportunity at a Fortune 500 company? Can you compare that ambitious goal to the priceless value of her becoming a mother and bearing just one child? You cannot. 
You see, as much sin and difficulty that Jacob and his family betrayed, there was a laudable characteristic in his home and in the heart of Rachel. Children were viewed as a blessing and as a heritage, not as a liability, but as an asset. Not as a source of stress, how will I pay for all their college, how will I cover their medical bills, what will this mean for my future career, but instead the Lord has blessed us and overflowing so. You cannot place a price on a single human life. Precious is each of these souls in the eyes of the Lord. What a great privilege and gift to steward each one of their souls. And the Lord may not call you to be a parent. He may call you to have one, or he may call you to bear many, but recognize the heart of what the scripture says. It's in direct opposition to that, the virtues that we celebrate so often today. Children are a heritage. Rachel's longing and her sorrows for being deprived of them and barrenness as well as death and the attending genealogies which chronicle the growth of the kingdom of Israel, so to speak, and the people of God by means of faithful, being faithful to the command to go forth, be fruitful, and multiply. These texts condemn by contrast our cultural value assessment of children, which is tolerated <coughs> excuse me, which tolerated the codification by statute of injustice that was Roe v. Wade. In other words, if we viewed children as the Bible does, there's no way Roe v. Wade would have stood for 50 years. This week, as I mentioned, the introduction to this service, this idol was torn down by the sovereign hand of God. But we note it was torn down to the screeching protests of the neo-Herod lobby in this nation. Those not in the heart of Rachel weeping for the loss of children, but in the heart of Herod, seeking to exercise unilateral authority and killing whatever children stood between him and his path to success. We call this a constitutional right. God forbid, woe to a nation who says such a thing. We call this reproductive freedom. Woe to a nation who would join the, hot, the Herod lobby and Satan's intention to stamp out the fruit of the very vehicle of the Reformation in the womb as something to be killed on the altar of our preferences. Woe to a nation who holds to such things. Let us pray that we would repent of being so perverse in our value of what God considers priceless. Only when we repent to the standards of God's word where every life is considered made in the image of God and worthy of protection will the high places of the murderous intentions of our society be finally destroyed and brought to the ground. May it be so, O Lord, as we turn from this and other transgressions against your holy law. The blessing of God in the house of Jacob reminds us of his purposes. The birth of each child there is a soul who is to be reached with the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if the Lord tarries, what a blessing that there would be more of them, that his, uh, that his people and that the stands of heaven might be populated with more that would praise his holy name. Let us pray even this week that mothers who are on the way to snuff out the life within their womb would raise up children who would testify by the grace of a sovereign God I was on my way to death, but there was an intervention. And now I testify before you today. I stand in the gap for the little ones. Recognize 
that which God has placed sovereign and miraculously within your womb, mothers, is a glorious gift, a priceless treasure from a sovereign God and a soul to be stewarded in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. I pray for that kind of testimony. It's the fruit of God's work in our society even this week. Finally, this morning, we're marking milestones on Jacob's journey from Bethel. We noted birth and death attend his way, a pillar and a tower in its meaning, sins and sons. Finally, there's a funeral and a reunion. Verses 27 through 29. And Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre, or Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had sojourned. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years, and Isaac breathed his last, and he died and was gathered to his people, old and full of days. And his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. We see a pattern here. We'll explore it more in future weeks. Chapter 25, 7 through 11, a similar event. Abraham has died, and Isaac and Ishmael are reunited in the burial of their father. It's interesting to note, and there's similar literary clues that signal a chapter shift in the record here and there as well. And as we note these things, perhaps we can draw a few messages that will become clearer in the pages of Scripture moving forward. There's a death in the family, yes, but this death serves a purpose in God's revelatory intent. In the son of Jacob to come, it would in fact be through death that the covenant promises would be secured in spite of the wages of sin plaguing humanity since Adam and the bitter providences in the house of Jacob. In other words, this funeral provided something of an occasion for a family reunion. And maybe you're familiar with something like this. Oftentimes, even in our experience, families who are riddled by strife and sin that separates them, sometimes there's a brief moment of burying the hatchet and a sweet kind of reunion and coming together at a funeral. The death of a loved one provides perspective. There's some things that are bigger than my grievances and my attitude. And suddenly we become aware that we may not have tomorrow and death comes suddenly like a thief in the night and I better you know, take that seriously and live in light of things that are bigger than my own preferences and the assumption that I am, you know, that I deserve to remain offended at my family member and nurture this grudge and so on and so forth. So sometimes the occasion of a funeral is something like a reunion where peace and unity are established. But let's be honest, a funeral itself will not accomplish any lasting reconciliation unless it's a meeting at another funeral, if you will. If the funeral of Jesus Christ, so to speak, if the death of Jesus Christ is the point of unity and contact for a family reunion, now that bond will never be broken. When Jesus died, he died for sinners who had placed their hope in him. And at that funeral, if you will, recognizing his death on the cross, we understand ourselves as guilty and our brother or sister standing next to us as guilty, yet our sins paid for by the blood of Jesus. This creates an unbreakable family bond that is called the body of Christ, which Jacob's household pictured of old. It's the covenant bonds that create unity by virtue of a death in our place. So there's a, small, there's a picture here of a reunion to come through the death of a covenant son. A burial reunion would happen through the work of Jesus Christ. As with Isaac and Ishmael, it often takes a tragedy to unite, at least for a moment, 
a family torn apart by sin and strife. The hope of the gospel, the hope that the gospel provides us today is surpassing power in this regard. There is a death of a covenant son whose funeral will provide, if you will, enduring reconciliation and unity despite enmity with God and one another in this fallen world. And therein is a picture of the gospel. For a brief moment, the death of Isaac creates a family reunion for those who were one, at one time at odds, Esau and Jacob. But it shines forth, it anticipates, it prefigures a death to come, Jesus Christ. And it is at that event where our sins were paid for, that ultimate reconciliation, final reunion is possible. Not just between brothers once at odds, but between a sinner and a holy God. It is at that place, the cross of Jesus Christ, that heaven's staircase touched ground, and we can ascend those steps in the second resurrection if we place our faith and hope in Jesus and trust that he died for our sins. And therefore, like was pictured in baptism last week, remember kids, we talked about this, in baptism you were buried with Christ, and as you came forth from that water, it's a picture of resurrection with him. Baptism is a picture of the guarantee of eternal life in Jesus Christ. And just as you are brought up that water, so you will one day be brought, if you will, up that staircase that Jacob saw in his dream in chapter 28 to rule and reign with Christ, the right hand of the Father, to be welcomed into the glorious presence and favor of a mighty God and a holy God. And how is this possible? Through the death of Jesus in your place, Jesus Christ paying for your sins. Let us remember these things as we close in prayer this morning. Father, we're so thankful for the glories of the gospel written on every page of your holy word. We only ask that you would write them on the pages of our hearts, that we would appreciate them all the more, be equipped to proclaim them to others, and that they would give us confidence to stand in a day when they're challenged. We thank you, Lord, for your mercy and your care, your patience, your loving kindness, your steadfast love towards us in Christ our Lord. We pray that you would only magnify our appreciation and our worship, Lord, as we consider these things. May fruit of this message go forth to cause our witness to be stronger, the lost to be called to salvation, and your people to be sanctified and equipped for the Great Commission, to go forth and to teach others all that you've commanded. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.